What's up? What's up? Hi. Well, hello. Hey, yo. Hey, guys. <laughs> Hi. Hey, everybody. No. Yo, yo, yo. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Why don't we do a take two? As, wait a minute. Let's start again. Hello, hello. <laughs> Hi, this is Ron Votri. This is Alex Nussbaum. This is Jason Fraser. This is Matt O'Brien. Hey, this is Ray Zwicker. All right, world. My name is Cal Post. Guys, this is Christina Walkinshaw. This is Eddie Delisepi. This is Adrian Spencer. Uh, my name is Timo. And you're listening to the Julian Dion Camp. You're listening to the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast. <laughs> Who am I talking to? What am yeah. I doing? <laughs> Julian Dion. Comedy Hour? Listen to the ah, fuck some comedy <laughs> hour. See, I took the word out comedy, changes the yeah, meaning completely, doesn't it? Days and not really, I'm overworking, but days in the holidays. Happy holidays. You're listening to the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast. You know, this would be so much better if you were high. If you were high. If you were Snap attack, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> uh, welcome to the Julian Dion comedy. Let's down, down. Let's go down on the music a little bit down. Let's bring her down a little bit. Welcome to the Julian Dion comedy hour podcast, episode 28. Hey, hey, hey. Episode uh, or 28, which is the second installment, a little more down on the music, a little less, a little loud. Second installment of the East Coast State tapes second and final installment that's right two whatever i brought my gear halfway across the country i I locked down two two interviews that's fine it's the holidays all right i'm gonna take it easy marshall button is my guest today comedic actor marshall button lucien lucien marshall button from renort shore Good guy. Had a great chat about uh, the business of show business. Uh, I've known Marshall since I've started stand-up. He's the coordinator of the Hubcap Comedy Festival. One of the, or, or the, sorry, he's the, he's the one of the founders of the Hubcap Comedy Festival as well as coordinators. Marshall Button is my guest today. Hold on, I'm just, I'm so distracted when I'm not in studios, studio in Lemon Press Studios because I have. I'm trying to uh, get these levels right. I'm in a, I'm in a cottage in the woods in Skidoo. By the way, Moncton, thanks for coming out on Friday, December 19th. This past Friday, man, the Empress Theater was packed. It was a great turnout. In fact, I'm gonna turn that recording into a, an album. 
an album, second one, second album. Do you even have a first? Yeah, I do. I recorded it, recorded it two years ago in Moncton in 2012, but never released it. So I'm gonna release both. I'm pretty green in the first one, but whatevs. Just put the material out there, and for the original purpose of the album, which was to just sort of document and uh, my body of work, and just sort of move on from some material from early on. Anyway. Marshall Button, have I said that? Is, is my guest today. We sat in the Empress Theater and had a good chat. It's December 23rd. It's almost Christmas time. I haven't begun my Christmas shopping yet. That's right. I do it every year, 24th. I do it all on the 24th. It's a day for me where I just go and I get all the shopping done by myself. And it's great, usually, except last year I had a meltdown. First time ever I had a meltdown. Panicked. I didn't know what to buy. I was in Ottawa, Rideau Center, just walking around. But but now I'm, I'm in my home turf. Champlain Place. I got this. This is... I got this. It's easy. I haven't even started shopping yet. But anyway, uh, look forward to that. I'm just in the Christmas spirit. I'm, I'm Now that the show's done, it was really the only work I had over the next two weeks. I get to just chill. Take a chill pill. Remember that? Circa 1996? Sure, take a chill pill. All right. Maybe from like 93 to 96. I'm not sure of that time frame. Email the show pod at jdcomedyhour.com and let me know about that. Take a chill pill. When is that from? Which, which specific era? When did that peak as a thing in society? Oh, uh, Luca Rocco Magnata was uh, found guilty of first-degree murder, which, yeah, of course. Why did anybody... Uh, uh, here's the thing. It took the jury eight hours. Okay, if you don't know uh, the Luca Rocco Magnata case, uh, well, you're, you can't be listening to this because you were just born. You're an infant, and your ears are... You don't understand English? Or technology enough to even understand this. So, uh, but anyway, he was found first degree uh, guilty, but it took the jury eight um, eight hours to find. Oh, spike the levels on the hours there. That's passion right there. Uh, and not being in studio, but they took eight hours to get the get the guilty verdict, which is to me seems like a long time. I mean, there's a full video. He does it all on video, and it's uh, it's all there, start to finish. Pre, during, and post, full admission, everything, eight hours. Anyway, we have, uh, turns out we have one of the jurors on the line. We have juror number six on the line. Uh, juror number six, uh, welcome, and thank you for uh, thank you for doing this. Yeah, it's uh, really not a problem. My pleasure, Julian. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Now, you guys found Luca Rocca Magnato guilty of first-degree murder, which, of course, is uh, there could have really no been no other possible outcome. But uh, why why the eight hours of deliberation is uh, the well, question well, the that remains, is, I guess. Well, the thing is, it's not so black and white as it would appear because the, it's on the video. It's there. But at the same yeah, it's time, all there on the video. There's no reason it should take eight hours. It should be just like a. Maybe it seems you're milking milking the well, process for a the reason. The thing is, it's there. He, oh, here's the thing. The, it, it's him, okay, mur murdering him in the first degree on camera. Um, the thing is, is it f m murder him in the first degree? 
Matt, okay, so you really don't have an answer as to why it would take... All right, um, this bit is going nowhere. This is why you rehearse and write things instead of just trying them on the fly. Let's get to my guests now. Enjoy my chat with the wonderful Mr. Marshall Button. This episode of the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast, that's the second and final installment of the East Coast Tapes, is brought to you yet again by not so much an East Coast city, but the city, Toronto. That's right, Toronto listeners, this one's for you. If you're looking to get some headshots done, if you're a musician, actor, business person, woman, guy, whatever, it doesn't really matter, whatever. You need some photography needs, listen up. You need photography needs, Echo One Photography will fulfill those needs. If you own a business, you want to get some product photography done for e-commerce or advertising purposes, look no further because Echo One does that too. Email Eugene, that's E-U-G-E-N-E, that's my buddy Eugene over there, at echo1photography.com and enter J-D-C-H in the subject line for special offers. Go ahead and do that today. You and me belong, just like the flowers, laughing all day long. People I need to lose, sing a little song. Take a shower, Julian Dion, comedy hour. Okay. Top attraction numero one, les Hopewell Rock. Tu vu là, ici dans le Fundy là, that's where they got the rock. Water, make hole in that. People from Ontario pay big buck for that là, okay. Okay. This is where the highest tides in the world have gouged, excuse moi, wait, gouged four-story sculpture from the cliff. Come better understand the culture and history of Halbert County. What they really want to say there, young fella? Come on, get your rocks off in New Brunswick. <laughs> Discover the unique Albert County culture. 101 use of old Javex bottle on the side of the road. <laughs> this is the place where gun control means keeping the safety on until after you turn on the spotlight. Okay, and that of course is my guest. He sits in front of me. We're in the beautiful Empress Empress. Empress Theater, downtown Moncton. Uh, my guest today, you know, I always talk about uh, the notion of making a career at home. I'm, I'm big on building a career in Canadian show business. You can do it all in Canada without, without having to leave. Well, you can actually take that one step further. And really the dream, it seems, for most performers is to be able to do what you love from anywhere. Um, in, and in this case, my guest today does that. He's a stand-up comedian of 34 years in the business, and uh, he's the founder of the Hubcap Comedy Fest in Moncton that's actually become quite a big, and uh, it's a really good festival. It's a really, really nice festival. And he earns a living as a comedian, as Lucien, and he makes his home in Moncton, New Brunswick. Marshall Button is my guest. Hey, buddy, how are you? 
You said it all, man. I'm good. I hear they have this thing now called the internet that you can <laughs> yeah, talk it. in a can and then other people have these sort of... Somehow. You know, like 34 years ago when I started, there were no cans that you could talk into. You just had to stand on these boards. Let's talk about that. You started 34 years ago. Well, first, first of all, yeah, no, I'm not a stand-up comedian. I am a... Humorist? I guess, I guess in French we say comédien for actor. Right. Uh... I never had a plan to be a comedian, but that's how people introduce me. That's how people mm -hmm. on the street think I am. I, I only have ever really tried to uh, portray characters in a way that I I thought would be true to them. And uh, so it's theater, really. It's live theater right. what I do. But then I, all of a sudden I find myself last year having to fill in because uh, I don't want to name them because all your comedian friends listen, but somebody mm. bailed on us on in our comedy festival, which is why, yeah, which is why I never uh, really want to perform myself. So I, I fill in and I, how the heck can I do this in a bar in front of a group of people? So yeah, I, I've evolved into that, mm -hmm. but um, it's a weird thing because you are uh, the, you know, uh, esteemed man uh, on the other side of the mic, uh, uh, former winner of our what had been you know known as the amateur contest like That's right. 75 years ago or yeah. not quite, but and now look look at you, but y you you represent yourself. You're mm -hmm. you know people came to the Empress, uh, and I want to give a little plug for uh, Julien's great success in his hometown here. Uh, coming and self-producing here at the Empress Theater to a packed house and uh, people on our staff were here and I ran into some people uh, who had been at the show and loved it. Great. But, but you, you. you know, the billing is yourself. You that's are, right. and, and, and so this notion of you being a, a person that's using your real name or a name that you have adopted that you use on a check that you might sign, not that we do that anymore, mm -hmm. but... Uh, you're up there being yourself or you're telling jokes as yourself. I've never been able to conquer that, even though I've never worked outside of show business, never made it really any money outside of that. That's how I've done my whole life. Uh, I have to pretend to be somebody else. So there's the difference. Right. So you, it's more of a character. Like, a, Would you classify it maybe as like a one-man show? That's kind of what I do. Look, right. I have four full-length plays that run over two hours each. So typically in a week, no, that's crazy. Uh, like so, like a lot of comedians, I would have done Christmas parties for corporate things. So a law firm in Fredericton will, you know, get in touch and come up with three or four thousand bucks that I can go and speak for, you know, forty minutes or so, and uh, I will draw from those, and then I'll say, well, it's a law firm. Uh, geez, is anything funny about lawyers? I guess mm -hmm. not. And uh, it's Christmas, and I'll figure out a few things as I'm driving in the van, but I always have to hide behind the mask of this character. Right. And the other thing that I've never been able to master, although I do a lot of this now, like I, I get paid to host things around New Brunswick. I'm kind of New Brunswick's Toastmaster. Do you do that in character when you do No. That? But the other thing that I, I, I've never really gotten a good handle on is to speak directly to an audience. So my, my shtick with the character Lucien, which you would have heard in the clip, he's speaking to another character who you don't see, right. but it's always represented from an empty chair. And it's a bit like there was an old play, Harvey, which was made into a movie with James Stewart. And it's mm -hmm. this man who claims to have a friend, Harvey, and Harvey is this giant rabbit. And, uh, you know, who knows Who knows that this could become a, uh, a great money-making play and, of course, a movie that wowed people in the 40s and 50s. But in my case, there's this Harvey, there's this imagined person mm -hmm. who, of course, 
this is all based on my experiences working in a paper mill in northern New Brunswick where I grew up in Dalhousie. And I'm the guy sitting in the chair because I would meet these guys at 3, 4, 5 right, o'clock in right. the morning and they'd talk to me and they were very outrageous, I thought. But I, I would just be silent, not silently, I would be a listener, as I still am, you know, in this kind of business. you got to watch what's going around or, around you. And, um, yeah, I, I, I've never been able to make that leap. And I, I, my hat's off to you and, you know, those of you that we get into our festival every year who are able to stand mm -hmm. there without a rope, so to speak, or without that mask that I always need to put on. Well, it's kind of like, I guess the difference, uh, based on what you're saying, is when you perform, there's very much that fourth wall up there uh, between you and the audience, whereas, I guess, stand-up, you kind of want to break that fourth wall down and, um, and sort of make that connection with the audience. I would love to see you do it like as Marshall Button, and mm -hmm. just see see what would uh, come from that. that well, no, sure. I have done that actually, and and it's not. I don't have anything planned so much, and I, I alluded to a little earlier where this is the biggest place I've ever lived in, and I've never worked outside of. Oh, I lived in Toronto for about three months in nineteen. 81 maybe somewhere in there maybe was that to pursue an acting career right and i was there a little while and i got a couple of tv gigs but i just found it was geez i was spending a lot of time just going to auditions and i don't know i just wanted to be busy so we came back to new brunswick and lived in fredericton and formed a theater company we mm -hmm. toured around for about five or six years to ho various hotels around the maritimes mm -hmm. and those walls could talk they'd have some stories however um i i um so, so uh, what's happened now is to the Marshall Button thing, I guess, is I've become de facto New Brunswick's Toastmaster because, you know, I think there are only about four professional actors, <laughs> members of Canadian Actors' Equity or ACTRA, if you will, who live in New Brunswick. And I've gotten known as someone who, you know, I can, as we say, swing both ways in English and French. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I, you know, I'm able to stand and, and I've learned the craft a little bit just to be totally relaxed to have a mind blank and no even when I do Lucien it, it's not quite theater because you're in there in front and you you realize it is a conversation with an audience even mm -hmm. though I am speaking to this there is the guys but the, you know it, it's ultimately for them and as you know uh uh, when the light comes on, uh, those of us who ever tried to do this uh, turn into an audience slot in a minute, right? That's, that's right, that's, of course. We're just audience slots. That's what we are. That's what we are. Let's let's go back a little bit. So you started in 1980, as you said, and from Dalhousie, which is a very small community mm -hmm. on at the North Shore. Which that's right. As your inspiration, like you said. Um, so what inspires a, a, a kid from Dalhousie to get into a very unconventional? Um, you know, career. Well, yeah, and it, it's a bit like the stand-up thing. When we started the Hubcap 15 years ago, mm -hmm. it was a bit of a, st st not a struggle, but it was a stretch for us to fill a roster because we decided our mandate was to be 100% Canadian. Mm -hmm. Whether they lived in Vegas or Los Angeles, we just decided that was the thing. We wanted to promote uh, Canadian comedy. It wasn't mm -hmm. all stand-up, but, it, you know, it's mostly stand-up. So, um that that you know it it was a bit of a stretch. Now imagine going back to 1980, thinking you wanted to be a professional actor. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know if that was a thing. Although was it just from watching TV? No, it was mostly from seeing plays. There was of right. course Theater New Brunswick had started, and there was a regular circuit. All the t shows would tour, and I would go see those. And of course, you did this in school, uh, and 
being a very shy, introverted person, you end up, a lot of us, I think, end up gravitating towards that. Mm-hmm. It's the old, uh, you know, the, what's his name? Um, uh, the guy that climbed Everest, uh, um, he was afraid of heights. So a lot of people who uh, end up, you know, trying to make people laugh and amuse them, I think, come out of an introverted place. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I was the kid who was always, and, and even though people didn't really know what that was, a lot of people would say that there's the actor, there's going to be, and uh, and my grandfather, Pepper, he on my mother's side is francophone, my father's from Newfoundland, so that's kind of why I ended up in this business. So as a kid, there were two things that were jokes made of when I was growing up. One was, of course, French Canadians, and the other were Newfoundlanders, a lot of Newfie jokes back then, and mm-hmm. I, I had that both sides of that. But Pepper would always say, uh, Marshal, Rilo, uh, doctor, like, well, I'm going to be the doctor in the mm-hmm. family, like, because he knew I was different. But he didn't quite, you know, I didn't quite fit in the mill, even though I, I did work there. So, um, yeah, I just uh, went off to theater school. I went off to university, really, and studied and have a degree in drama. Uh, Where, whereabouts? At, in, at Bishop's University in Lenoxville, Quebec. They still okay. have a great program there for that. All in French? No, it was in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the few English universities in Quebec, and it's the only one really outside of Montreal. And uh, in the eastern townships, it's now part of Sherbrooke, but it was Lenoxville, Quebec. Mm-hmm. And um, you're obviously bilingual. Um, uh, did you have like a? Was your mother English? Or my father? mother. My mother was. Uh, was is interesting. My mother is French, but growing up, she never spoke French to us. Like okay, uh, right. I, I really have become more bilingual just being in Moncton the last. 50, even though I always had it in me, mm-hmm. and I had to speak French to all my relatives, they didn't really speak English. But my mother, who grew up in this town, and I mean Dalhousie is a shadow of its former herself it's a town that when i was a kid had six thousand five hundred people it had like a semi-professional hockey team and it was all kinds of things about five department stores i mean there's nothing there now but when she grew up there was like the two sides of town like there was the people that lived where she grew up which was a very pretty part of the town and then it was all the company houses and the engineers of course who built upwind from the mills mm-hmm. so they didn't get all the the smell and the pollution um, and they seemed to have, you know, for her, nicer houses and uh, drove cars and more opportunity, it seemed. That's the, that was just the reality of New Brunswick back in the 50s when I was born. Um, and, um, and so when she met and fell in love and married this English-speaking man, she just decided it was a better idea for her kids to speak English. And that's the way we grew up. But anyway, so as my, fa- as my uh, father would tell all the jokes, my mother would tell all the stories, because that's more of the Acadian, the raconteur, you know. The, right. She'd come home, and she taught special needs children. In those days, it was called, uh, she, was, uh, she taught retarded children, and that mm-hmm. was the name for it. It was very interesting. Uh, now we've lost that term. Yeah, completely. And now now I, I sit on a number of boards, and I had for a number of years sit on this thing called the Association for Community Living. It's fucking impossible to raise money for the Association of, Conser- of Con- Community Living. I can't even say it because people don't know what it is. We all live in the community, and it's like we have to be so politically correct today. It's so vague in general. Back when my mother was the teacher, they had the Association for the Mentally Retarded. We're in. Like we could, we yeah. could raise easily. Yeah, You'd yeah. say, "I'm here to represent you." We know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> yes, here's your ten thousand bucks. But now it's it's crazy because they try to raise money here every year, and even when I sat on the board, you know, of this, and I'm getting off topic, but you know, I'd say, "Well, there's a little problem with the name here. Like, what is community?" Anyway, so um, so my mother would come home with these stories of these 
people who she taught, uh, and we didn't even know what autism was back then. Everybody mm. was just retarded, like it was like you had <laughs> autism. Yeah, if you had Down syndrome, in those days you were known as mongoloids. It's mm-hmm. funny how we've you know lost all these. I think if you had a limp back then, you were retarded. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I was certainly, but uh, I, I mean, I'm not making jokes about people like that because I I, I would spend all of my lunch hours in there with the group. And of course, a lot of these Down syndrome children are marvelous mm-hmm. performers, just naturally. And they just, there's no fourth wall, nothing. They're just in a character. And they would they would see things they'd have on the, on the, on the television. And one guy would do this whole, like uh, a healer that he'd see. And one guy's mother was a, uh, you know, would take him to all these faith healers, thinking that it would cure him of his, mm-hmm. he was, and I, I guess now we'd say he was severely autistic. He never spoke. So here's an interesting story. This name, Gilles, and she'd take him to all these healers in Quebec, and she'd tell all the stories of she'd go here, go there, and all this. So one day, this kid who had never spoken, he's 13 years old, he's in the class, and I had known him, you know, for three or four years. He's All he ever did was stare out the window. He turned and looked towards the rest of the group, and he said the word, Cocksucker. It was the <laughs> the very first word he ever said in his life, and then he didn't stop saying it. He said cocksucker, and this is—it sounds like you're making this up. Cocksucker, cocksucker. And then he went home, and the mother calls my mother, and she's just ecstatic. Of course, it was she didn't really, you know, speak any English, but the word, the fact that her child was speaking, and he's looking at his mother saying cocksucker, cocksucker. It's just a miracle. It's a miracle, Madame Batten. She was so excited. But anyway, I learned a lot from those years of, you know, both my mother telling stories of the things that went on in the classroom and witnessing that, and then all these jokes that, that my my father would tell. So then, you know, you go to school, you do all this. Uh, I went to university and studied. And while I was in university, I worked in the mill. So get this, my first year of university, this is how old I am, everything, including travel, <laughs> living expenses, cost me about Fifteen hundred dollars for the entire year, including tuition. And Everything. Everything. Tuition was three hundred and twenty bucks or something stupid. <laughs> that's it's insane. insane. It, that's how. Yeah, but it, it was really cheap in Quebec, and they, they uh, it still is compared to the rest of the country. But that university was in danger of shutting down. That's how it was. Just when the Parti Québécois, that was the year I started, nineteen seventy-six, when they first got elected. And it was it was its whole existence was threatened, so it was really inexpensive to go there. And I was working in the mill, making fifteen dollars an hour. Mm. So I would make I don't know four or five thousand bucks in the summer, yeah. and go to school. So I had a car. Had I was it was just like, and I always tell this to people in university today. Like I've just had two kids go through and graduate from university. So anyway, I'm doing all this stuff. Uh, Working in the mill, unbeknownst to me, that this would lead to. I knew I wanted to be an actor, and then I thought, well, geez, I can work in the mill. What's you know, what a great because everybody in town almost that was your first option. A lot of my friends, you know, they just out of high school started working there. Um, but so we we need to raise some money for a hubcap comedy festival this year, and uh, so they have a roast, and I am roasted. Mm. So my son, who's twenty four now, and um, is not a comedian, but should be. He, he, so he do, he cl- closes the evening uh, before I have to get up and do my retort. But uh, he did a marvelous routine, but he starts off, you know, and, and why it was so good, of course, is he just states everyday true things that happen in our household. Right. But he starts <laughs> off his thing, he says, my dad has had two jobs. First, 
He worked in a pulp and paper mill. Since then, he's pretended to be someone who's worked in a pulp and paper <laughs> mill. That sums up my life. That's right. it. That's it. I'm, I'm done. So, <laughs> yeah. And so, but how do you break in? Like, how do you get into show business? Because you graduate. What year did you graduate university? Uh, 1980. Uh, yeah, I finished in uh, January. I did. A, I finished in three and a half years. So. Uh, I started in 76, it would have been January of 1980, and it just so happened one of my, uh, my acting teacher mm -hmm. was job poached away from his uh, position to go be, become artistic director of something called Theatre London, and uh, he was casting for a play called Equus, and you, Equus is the play uh, where um, these two young people remove all their clothing, and this was very, uh, it, it, uh, you know, risque back in the 1970s, right? Mm -hmm. um, so he was casting uh, this pl this play, uh, and would I want to go be part of this? And I'm just graduating from university. Oh, sure. And so I got in the show and uh, thought, well, this is good. And one thing he did say to me, and this is, I know, you know, I mentioned, I alluded to earlier about our amateur night or whatever, but he said, darling, his name was Bernard Hopkins. He just died this year, and he was in this. Anyway, he says, darling, the most important thing is you must never do anything for nothing. He said, even if it's a bottle of scotch. He said, you're a professional. As soon as you, you know, in other words, you decide to become a professional, and that's what it is. This is how I earn my living. And to me, it was very simple. Mm -hmm. I just decided, well, uh, even even now, um, because there's not a lot going on in the Brunswick theater-wise, but there's this company in St. John, um, and they do a lot of great work, and they're growing. They're called St. John Theater Company. But part of how they become so successful is they have actors who work for free. So they've been after me when I want to do something. So now I'm going to do a project with them. But my first thing is, well, I'm not interested in being in a show because mm -hmm. this is how I earn my living. And they go, oh, okay. So they'll find money to pay me. And I know there are people in the show who won't be paid because they're happy to do it. Right. But guess what? I'm not. That's right. So if I really want to do that, and then... Because they, you know, they have to rent the Imperial Theater in St. John. They mm -hmm. have to do all these other things, pay to print tickets, uh, all all the usual things that go along with it. But that's what I've decided. That's that's my bottom line. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm I'm not. You know, I, if if I'm going to if if I'm going to have sex, I'm a prostitute. I'm a professional. You know, right. that's the thing. So I think that's a crucial decision to make and an important one that sometimes people don't make. Like you said, they're happy to work free at at all levels. And, and that doesn't help the business because, and strictly speaking of stand-up, it's amazing how many people expect you to do it for free. Ugh. It's crazy. That it, and in the same beat, they'll tell you how hard it is. Yeah. I can't believe you you do that. That's You go in front yeah. of people. And, and how do you remember that, all that? Yeah, that's insane. And then you tell them that you, you give them, a, you, you invoice them and like, wait, what? You want to get paid for that? Like, yeah. No, it's, it's so weird, but. It's really important to make that decision, and also to na to say no to to things. It's so it's 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 almost liberating to be able to say no, which is very difficult to do, as you know, mm -hmm. when you're on that. Now, my thing is, I've my wife used to be the main breadwinner. We've been married for oh gosh, nearly thirty five years now, crazy, but. Um, she retired. You know, once we started having children, I said, "Well, I'm going to have to get busy here." So. Um, I I rely on her to do, do the negotiations because people mm -hmm. would call me and I go, oh, you know, I knew I had to get paid, but I just say, well, you know, whatever's in your budget, it suits, you know, you hate to ask. She'll just say, no, uh, here's the fee. Uh, and if people don't want to pay it, that's fine. Yeah. Because, you know, I realized and by having her do that, 
it's so much better to get one show at you know thirty five hundred bucks mm-hmm. than try to scramble around to do three at a thousand each, where you totally. come out less, and then you're where, where the heck are you? I mean, you're you, you you know you're all over the place, uh, and and you may have missed out on the big one because you've said yes to this this other one. So. And and also it sets a standard. I mean, I have this uh, friend who does another character. He you, we used to be in the same town, but the town wasn't big enough. Mm-hmm. Sandy Gillis, he does Jimmy the janitor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this Cape Breton. So there's similarities, except he does sort of stand up and talks to the audience and tells jokes that he steals off the internet. I didn't say that, but anyway, <laughs> he, um, you know, he he, he um, his thing is that he. Uh, he started out, he he had a job, he was in radio, and he used to make $100 a gig. Mm-hmm. And he had an agent from Shediac, Ralph, who would book him, and he would get his, like, write the check and take his 10%, like, you know, Sandy, get the 90. And it, it was like, because that's, that's getting paid, the show business. And I moved in, and all of a sudden, it's like, okay, you want to book? So I, he said to me one day, when I moved to town, I called him and said, oh, we should try to do something together. So we used to do this little late-night cable TV show this, here. This is when you moved to town? Yeah, in the ni- in mid-90s, you're mm-hmm. 96. And we used to do it right here in the Empress, late mm-hmm. late night at the Empress, this, this TV show. Oh, yeah, right. I, and yeah, then yeah. and then, anyway, Sandy would say, well, how much? I said, well, I, you know, I just, I, I tell him it's 2,500 bucks. So all of a sudden it made his world so much better because, right. you know, some guy has come in and said, well, we want to book him. And then eventually he had to get good enough so that people felt it was worth the twenty five hundred mm-hmm. bucks. But it, it made him realize, hey, I can do this, mm-hmm. and uh, as long as the people are happy, uh, that's the going rate, right? It's like the when Marlon Brando, the very, you know, was scandalous. The very first Superman movie, Marlon Brando had eleven minutes on the screen, and it was the most money it ever paid for an actor. It was mm-hmm. like, and I mean, it's ridiculous to think of it now, but it was something like two point five million dollars. Mm-hmm which is not a big salary for a Hollywood actor in a movie now. But this question was posed to Marlon Brando. Like, how can you justify this? You know, you're on screen for 11 minutes and you're playing Superman's father, blah, blah, blah. It's just a small role. And he just paused. Well, that seemed to be the going rate, you know? Yeah. So People and, pay it. Yeah. In other words, and, and, and the other one too, I used to be artistic director of a theater company for 10 years in Ontario, a place called Upper Canada Playhouse. So there was this group of engineers from Montreal came to visit me because they heard me on CBC and they wanted to hire me to be part of their conference. It was an international conference for engineers. And I mean, I was just getting started. I didn't know. So these two men, you know, part of their day, they drive the two hours to get to Morrisburg, Ontario to meet me because they want to make sure, you know, I'm going to do this entertainment for them and it'll last this long. So, yeah, okay, fine. So here, you know, the the big question is how much do you want to charge? I don't, you know, just pause for a bit and I said, uh, I'm 1500 bucks. And they, they, looked, they, they were taken aback a bit, and they said, well, how about 2000 <laughs> It's the one and only time that ever happened, but it, it really, they probably had in their head, like, okay, four, four eight, I don't know what they were thinking. I mean, right. I wasn't, you know, I, I, I hadn't seen the bright lights of Montreal yet or whatever. But just the fact that someone would say that to me was, oh, I guess there's a whole different world there mm-hmm. when you're, and yeah, I mean, if you're going to do a, a small community hall in Bay de Van, New Brunswick. It's not the same as if it's a group of engineers and 300 of them right. having you for a conference. But uh, I do think getting back to that, there is that crucial moment where you, like any, whether you're a visual artist or a dancer or whatever, where you throw your stone in the water and say, uh, you know what, I'm not going to do this for free. 
And having said that, of course, we all have our causes, whether, you know, it's um, uh, this association to uh, to uh, stop violence against women. Of course, I'll go do that for you and host this and do a little skit. You mm-hmm. know, I, I do too many of those, but uh, they're charity things. And, you know, you, you make that that difference that um, that uh, this is my uh, way of uh, donating to a cause. Yeah, I, I mean, in. that's that's different. I mean, yeah, that, that, everybody like you does said, that. You're do- yeah, you donate your time that way, but it's different than someone trying to get you on the, oh, it's good for your exposure or whatever. Yeah. You just get past that yeah, early on. I have the best response to that. I said, uh, ma'am, I live in Canada. It's a very cold country. In this country, we die of exposure. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you can really, your career can die of exposure too. If that's, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And so let's just go quickly a little bit through the timeline. So you, you graduate and then you spend some time in Ontario. Where do you go from there right away? Well, I lived in Toronto for a little while. and Was I, that immediately after school? No, well, I did the show in London. And then and then right away I uh, got in touch with, there was the one professional English theatre company in, uh, in Brunswick Theatre, New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. And they hired me to do uh, a couple of shows and then uh, my friend, who now is the artistic director of the company that I used to be for 10 years, he's been doing it for over 15. He's originally from Newcastle, New Brunswick, Donnie Bowes. Anyway, he said, I'm moving to Toronto. Why don't you come up? There's all these shows happening. And and he had got himself in a couple of... And I you know, moved up there. But it just didn't really suit me. because, And this is, sounds like a joke, but the first week I was in New Brunswick, I had no money left because... I was so naive that people would ask me for money on the street and I would give it to them. Right. Oh, in Toronto. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And the reason why they would ask me is because I would look them in the eye and nod the way we <laughs> yeah. do in New Brunswick and right. sort of try to catch their eye and like, hey, you know, and then they weren't even, they weren't even bums. They, they just thought, well, <laughs> yeah. this guy is, anyway, I was a real, no, that's, that's sort of true. But um, I, I just didn't really fit there. So then I... I was only there a few months, and then. And I moved. what was the goal when you're in Toronto? Ah, I was gonna maybe um, become uh, artistic director of Canadian stage, which didn't even, didn't even exist then. But I, I was gonna act in theater and film, mm-hmm. and I did a couple of projects. But the fact that I wasn't busy all the time, you know. Anyway, I, I was living with my brother and his wife. They lived in in Scarborough. That was a really great experience back in the day. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I decided that I could come home and um, pursue opportunities. So I formed a company, um, and this happened by accident. And and a lot of it had to do with you know my sweetheart, the, uh, my wife now, who we'd gone to school together, like high school. We didn't mm-hmm. go to the same university. But we were missing each other, and she was working here in New Brunswick, so I came back. Whereabouts? In Fredericton. In Fredericton. Oh, and yeah, I, right, you mentioned I, that. And then yeah. I thought, well, geez, I'm an actor. I, I should work as a waiter for a while. So I got it. I did get It's the one job I got out of show business. So I, I worked there for about, well, going back, there was a, a, um, a uh, an interview, and I didn't want to put on my resume that I had worked in theater because I thought they wouldn't hire me. Because I thought, well, he, he just wants to do this so temporary, which I did. I didn't think mm-hmm. I didn't see this permanent thing. But I, here I was, a university graduate, and and so this guy, he was a really, really fantastic man, uh, Lou, uh, the manager of this hotel. That I saw this ad, you know, the, it was a high-end restaurant in a hotel, and he said, um, 
oh, I want to hire you because you're a university graduate and I, I like university graduates. They make good waiters. I said, okay. So I felt guilty that he was going to give me this job without fessing up. And I said, look, I have to tell you something. I said, you know, really, I, I worked a few jobs in professional theater. And there's this pause and he goes, oh, really? He says, well, I've been trying to start a dinner theater in this town now for a few years. He said, I was in uh, Toronto and I attended one. And he said, it was good. And I called the people down at Theater New Brunswick, but they were too busy. And he said, is this something you can do? And without hesitation, I said, sure, I can Crazy. do that. And then I had this five-year, well, about four, four and a half years of just this crazy existence where there was a group of us we were like a rock band, we, but we did plays and shows, and we were called a comedy asylum. So the only mandate was all the shows we did had to be funny. But we did Moliere, we did uh, Shakespeare, but they all had to be comedy. And then we started writing our own material, eventually, when we got confidence. But we would travel around and spend like a week in Halifax. And while we were there, we had free accommodation because we were at the hotel. They would feed us. Mm. And then we all got paid now. We would get so much, like if 100 people came, we would get like $9 of the $25 ticket price, which is a lot of money when the house was packed all the time. Mm -hmm. So we were all making, I don't know, about 300 bucks a week, which would be like making 1000 bucks a week now, or mm -hmm. I suppose, and uh, had no expenses. And then the manager of the hotel would love the show, and they'd come, and then they'd, you know, they'd open the bar for us and give us all free drinks all night. It was a, So I had to stop that eventually because my liver couldn't take it anymore. Right. But um, I learned so much about, and this is where I start to make the transition between the actor and the comedian, because the people, the stage is tiny, like the room we're in now, even smaller, and the tables are right up against it because it would pack these people in. And you, you, know, you could really just touch the person, even though you were pretending to be a character in the play. So I learned more about acting the first year of doing that job or doing that company than I did in all my years of studying it and reading about it just from, as you say, you don't hide from the audience, you know, mm -hmm. from really do, you know, as we talked about earlier, breaking down that fourth wall. So then, yeah, from there, and I've just been basically doing that in some form or other for most of my career, like making my own work. When, when did you mount the first Lucien piece? Um, that was, uh, in 1984 in New Brunswick, we celebrate. I was living in Fredericton, and it was a big celebration because it was 200 years of so the bicentennial of New Brunswick. And they had all this money that you could apply for, and there were people, you know, applying for snowmobile races in Kedgewick and getting grants. And I applied for this grant to write this show about New Brunswick, and was turned down. Like, you know, you you could get a a grant to do, uh, you know, make a totem pole in your backyard, but somehow I want to write this show. So we went ahead and did it anyway, and the guy who was responsible for the grants came to see it. Anyway, to make a long story, he ended up wanting to give us money after, so we extended the show through the whole year. But it ran, and the idea was to do it something that was spoofing New Brunswick. So a lot of it being, I was the main writer in the show, a lot of it was North Shore-centric, that's what I knew. And then for about... I, I wrote this thing that I thought would last two minutes, and it was this monologue of this. He was like a a, a melange, a, um, a a what's the word I'm looking for? A, a composite of mm -hmm. many of the guys I worked with in the mill. And it, and somebody said, "Well, you got to come up with a name." And I wanted a name that couldn't be anglicized, like you know, uh, people call you Julian. I'm told, mm -hmm. right? But um, 
So I picked Lucien because there happened to be a lot of Luciens working in, and people call him Julien, by the way. Oh, right? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, because it is one of those weird names, right? right. And there were happened to be a four or five Luciens in the mill. It was a common name in Dalhousie. I don't know why. You don't hear it too much other places. And I worked with a few of them who were real characters. So people were always, oh, that's uh, Lucien Lévesque. No, no, it's Lucien Leblanc. And they were all like guessing who it was. So I just picked that name and then it... it, it um, we ran the show for most of 1984, and it started out, it was two minutes. So here I am in a play with four or five other actors, and we have, like, we're playing guitars and singing, and it's, a, you know, some music in it and such, one of those shows. And by the time the year ended, the two minutes of the show became between 20 and 25. Mm. So I was really resented by the other actors. And one night, they threatened to do this, and they finally did it. They ordered pizza... And it was just like a little black curtain that was our set. And uh, right behind the black curtain, they all ate this entire pizza while I was doing my monologue as if to say, shut your fucking mouth, because I you know, was going on and on. But people were digging it, and then they seemed to, like, what, oh, what's that play from? And we don't know. I'd always apologize. No, it's not a play. It's just a... So finally, I thought I'm going to do this once. And um, in... Uh, 1985, I uh, approached the artistic director of the company then, the Theater New Brunswick, and I said, I'm interested in turning this into one month play. She says, fantastic, because her background was developing new Canadian plays. And she commissioned me, if you will, to do it. And uh, I spent a lot of 1985 writing, and in, in, in the early winter of 86, I premiered. I thought, I'm going to do this once. And I did it in March of 1986. And since then, I don't believe I've gone more than one month without representing that character in some form, whether it's a, like, for example, here, New Year's Eve, I'm going to do a commentary for CBC New Brunswick on the year that was mm -hmm. in character. So uh, including all of those things or the little appearance, I've never gone more than one month That's huge. without doing it somewhere. And that's what is 1984. That's 30 years ago, well, more than that now. A lot of performing. It's insane. And you've sort of managed to tap into what I was talking about off the top when I was bringing you in. It's because that seems to be the dream. I mean, it is in my case just to then eventually at some point be home or anywhere you want to call home and be able to do your, your craft and earn a living without having to be in one of the major centers like Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal. And you've really seemed to have done that. Talk to me a little bit about like the early days when you say when you went from that two minutes to 25 minutes uh, where you were presenting that play, whereabouts? Were you on tour or was that just one place? Uh, well, yeah, we ended up touring the show all over Atlantic Canada, mm -hmm. but it grew mostly from this two or three week run we had just in Fredericton. Mm -hmm. um, and we were doing it in a dinner theater format, but it wasn't like the way they do dinner theater now. I mean, we weren't, you know, taking drink orders and stuff. We were just right, the actors right. in there. But we had a little bit of an interaction with the audience before. But I learned the craft, and I'm sure you've done it many times, and many of your listeners and people you've had on, is the so-called writing on your feet. Yeah. Or in my case, it's sit down, because the character is mostly seated. But something would just pop into my head, and it's to get to that extreme blank state where you're not thinking about anything and I think mm -hmm. we've all had those shows I mean I, I had a show I used to do a, this version of this show that would last two and a half hours crazy and it's just and again I never use a microphone and it's, but I'm out you know it's I had the luxury of being in a theater that's usually good acoustics but I've been in a, it's happened to be about three or four times where two and a half hours has passed and there's virtually no memory that it 
was two and a half hours? Like, was that five minutes? Was that, mm-hmm. you just get to a complete, um, I mean, I've lost that now. I guess it's, it's kind of like professional sports or whatever, you know, you have your peak of the way the brain and, and the brain works best when it's not working. I think. Yeah, we, we, totally. I mean, the, the way that you can get to a state where there's absolutely no thought of, Oh, I wonder how that's going or right. I just told said this in a different way and is that woman laughing in a funny way or how come that man's not laughing? You know, all those thoughts. Never had a single thought mm-hmm. and you know it was the best show you ever did in your life because it just happened, right? And um and so you tend to spend the rest of your days craving that in the way it's, you know, the best drug you ever had or the you know, the best experience in, yeah, in your I, body. And I find that can happen when you're off your game a little bit, like whether you're sick or tired or have been traveling all yeah. day because you don't have the energy to worry about it. So you just get up there. And I, for me personally, and I've talked to other people like this, if you're off your game just a little bit, sometimes it's your best shows because you don't lend any energy to, like I said, worry about it at all. And you say now those days are, are behind you of going up with a blank slate and really being in the moment where you're creating why do you think you're behind that? Is it more now you're just like in autopilot mode? You you know the shows so well. You have four two-hour-plus shows. You just, you've just you done them. Is that why, or is it just a... Well, I mean, I, we've been talking just about this one character in the one show. I guess I should have retired that so mm-hmm. many years ago. And just being a very lazy person, as we all are, uh, to a certain extent, the phone rings and someone says, how'd you like to come to Prince George and entertain us for an hour and we'll fly you out here? And then you go, sure. Y- you know, I, I'm, I, I, I continue to develop and work on other projects. I mean, I've spent most of the last two months, I'm premiering a show now at, at our festival with it's myself and two other comedians and a 35-piece symphony orchestra. No way. So we're combining symphony music and, and what kind a little of show? bit of stand-up. It's called, uh, well, it's... Um, it's a it's a comedy symphony show, but just to give you a little scenario, it's this orchestra shows up. They think they're playing a real gig in mm-hmm. you know Full House at the Capitol, the beautiful Capitol Theater, and uh, they start to play. And the first thing they do is an overture of you know all the music you'll hear tonight, all symphonic, and they're fantastic. It's an ensemble called Tuta Musica, and it's a New, New Brunswick-based uh, professional symphony orchestra. But then all of a sudden, weird things start happening on the screen. And, you know, back in the 1990s where you have those pop-up videos mm-hmm. with a rock video, well, then all of a sudden you see pop-up symphonic videos and then the credits are rolling and such. And then they're about to do their first number, but the trap door on the stage opens up and these two handymen come in. And there's myself and another uh, great, uh, very good actor based here in, New Br- in uh, Moncton who's just retired from an education career now wants to get into the acting thing. And has you know been doing it all along. Blair Lawrence, he and I do these characters, Mitch and Mike. Mitch and Mike are these two guys from uh, Kent County, and they, they talk like this. But anyway, they they they're handymen, and they're they're just a couple of wankers. But they're here because the contractor told them it was to, they had to do a job on the stage, and so they're you know just start working. And the conductor, or the maestro, says, "Hey, well, what's going on?" And well, we're here to work, and. Well, we we can't stop working, and we, we get in our stamps, you know. We get, <laughs> so, uh, you, for translation to everyone listening to this outside of New Brunswick, that means I need need the work to get my EI benefits, right, unemployment mm-hmm. insurance. So, um, 
And finally, he gets into this argument, and he said, well, what do you do? He was for an orchestra. Well, what kind of music? Oh, we like music right on. He says, what kind of classical? I like classic rock. Play some April wine right on. So, no, no. And, and finally, they say they, there's an impasse, and they say, well, you do what you do, and we'll do what we do. So the first one is the uh, symphony, f handyman symphony for power tools and tools, as being the two guys, the tools. But they, they, they start playing... Um, uh, dance the Merliton from uh, the Nutcracker. It's like, tink a tink a tink 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 tink. You know all mm. the tools come, and right. so so the symphony is like tools. So it's skits like that. And uh, I, I've written a piece called the New Brunswickers Young New Brunswickers Guide to the Orchestra, and it, it attributes uh, a musical instrument to a different region of New Brunswick. Mm -hmm. Why the clarinet is big in in Karaket. You know the clarinet's a wind instrument. It's always windy in Karaket. Mm. Things like that. So uh, and then we have a stand-up. This young uh, comedian who's now based in St. John who will be um, part of our festival is here, James Mullinger. I don't mm -hmm. know if you met him. So James um, will do a thing about a foreigner moving to New Brunswick, which is pretty rare, especially a comedian. And, you know, here he is making a goal of his career now. But why he's taken to the province, why he's embraced Kijiji and Tim Hortons and the various things that define uh, being a New Brunswicker. So he's going to talk about this, but he has a whole orchestra behind him. So imagine that power is a stand-up. That's so pretty cool. If you remember the... Um, the, the skit of the I just met him a couple of days ago he was here doing a corporate gig and the, the 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 conceit we have for him is at the end of his stand-up routine it's a bit like that I am Joe and I'm Canadian there's a right. pomp and circumstance bom, 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 bom. they'll be mm -hmm. playing this and yes I drink Tim Hortons and yes I you know and I'm I'm uh, James and I'm a New Brunswicker and that's how it'll so different skits and uh, so that you know I'm always trying to do new things but and I, strangely, I'm not going to be doing my Lucien character in this particular play, which a lot of people will expect that. But um, but you're doing you're you're doing kind of uh, so it's like a repair guy. Yeah. And and so there's there is kind of a parallel there because it's kind of like the working class sort of oh, like yeah. blue collar. You seem to draw a lot of humor from that. Is that because it's just what you know, what you grew up around? That's what I grew up around. And, and there's I a certain charm to that too, you know. Yeah, and um, there is something about um, there is something about comedy and what you do, and I think with so many stand that is a very masculine. And people always said mm -hmm. that because in in live professional theater, it's you, you look usually in the audience, it's largely made up of women. It's like mm -hmm. professional dance or other live art forms. Whereas if you see stand up, but always in my shows, like back in the eighties and such, when I'd be doing these in the nineties, the audience. And because I was artistic director of the theater company, you'd look out and there'd be always more men in the audience. And I don't know if it's just because it's a bit sassier or mm -hmm. or whatever, but I do think it, that blue collar thing does draw that because a lot of times, you know, the best part for me would be you would meet people who had never been in a theater in their life. They didn't quite figure out like, okay, there's two parts, like, what, mm -hmm. you know, like intermission, what's that? You know, and they were just trying to figure out like they never. So just, just to have that experience of the guy who actually does the job or in the case, you know, the best review I ever had in my life by far was the first time I went to my hometown. I thought, are they going to kill me? Are they going to, you know, run me out of town? But of course I had a great reaction because in New Brunswick of all the places you can be in the world, people love to laugh at themselves more than any place in mm -hmm. the world, which is so true. But this man was laughing to the point that he was disrupting and it was my mother-in-law and this woman sitting next to her. So the woman sitting next to her taps on him and says, look, you're laughing so hard, I can't hear him, you know. And again, 
And he turned around with a stern look and he said, leave me alone. That's me I'm laughing at up there. Yeah. So to me, that's the uh, the payoff. Right. You know? So yeah, that I think we do have a lot of, I mean, New Brunswick has moved beyond that, but we, we do have a lot of people who worked in mines and mills mm-hmm. and we still have some. And uh, that was the world I grew up in. And, and, uh, and I do think people who work in, I want to say desperate, but people who work in jobs that are less than exciting have to find ways to amuse themselves because they're not, you know, now in an office job, you can go online and mm-hmm. hear a, you know, Julien Dion joke or whatever, you know, you can. But so there was a lot of the necessity to get through the day. And uh, my God, they used to play some awful pranks in the in the mill when we worked there. It was stuff I could never do in my show, really, some of it. Right. Yeah. And uh, where are you na- at now with uh, performing? How often do you go out? Is it a few times a year? Yeah, I'm pretty, I, I'm very lucky. I, I, I get to, um, I, you know, I've got to go to Afghanistan with, you know, some comedian. No Tra- Tracy McDonald was the, yeah. uh, you know, Tracy from Anaganish originally. Mm-hmm. I think she lives in California now. Uh, and, and different, you know, rock bands like the Fables from Newfoundland. And so I got to do gigs like that. But I, get, I still work in the professional theater. So mm-hmm. about twice a year, I'll go do a gig either as a director. And that's nice. You get paid lots of money to spend three weeks with people and tell them what to do. And hopefully it's a great show. And uh, or go work as an actor. Like this summer, I went to uh, Ontario and did a, a British farce, you know. So I got to play some weird oh, cool. Slovakian character. Mm-hmm. So I, I do... Uh, love that. I, I am still attempting to break into show business on the uh, TV and film side of things. I find that a very uh, completely different animal because in order to succeed, I've, I've decided that you must spend your entire life doing nothing else except trying to promote that particular project that you're doing and work on getting it in the face of whoever needs to make the decision. Walking billboard. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. And I've just never been able to do that. I'm all about just, oh, you know, it's like the Mickey Rooney thing. We'll get my uncle's barn, we'll get some costumes, we'll put on a show, mm-hmm. charge some money. If there's 200 people in the crowd, I'm very happy, they're laughing. That's you know, Anyway, I will get there. I mean, I have this 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 monster in the box, to quote Spalding Gray there, this, this project that I've been working in in development and have money to, um, you know, I have received money from CBC and various other people to develop this. And I just, just can't get my head around that whole, like you say, the walking billboard thing of, uh, the, sh- the, the, the suck holing, as we say on the North shore to get, to get your, uh, your work out there. Yeah. It's a, it's a nonstop process 24 seven. Um, I won't keep you too long, but let's just a little bit touch on the Hubcap Comedy Festival that, yeah. that uh, is coming February. We'll be celebrating 15 years. Yes. And, you know, it, the, the, the fest has grown to be such a, a big thing. It's got to be, and I can say this with confidence, the most show-heavy festival in Canada. Just on raw stage time alone, I mean, you do five or six half-hour bar shows when you come here. Yeah. They're packed. You do, like, three night. You you get off your stage, and it's all perfectly timed. You get off stage. There's a driver to bring you to the next one. You go to the next one. The other guy's got five minutes left, and he's f- finishing up. He goes to the next It's a great, great festival. It took time to build to that. So let's start. Like, how do you get into, how do you start a comedy festival? I mean, 15 years ago, there was only real, I mean, now they're sprouting out all over the place. But back then, there would have been like Halifax and Just for Laughs and Winnipeg, maybe. Yeah. Well, uh, we started it because in, again, in the uh, about 
uh, well, we started this show here late night at the Empress, and there was a little troop of people that like to make people laugh. And we would do these themes like we do Aboriginal show, and we have all these guys from Big Cove, which is, I guess, now Elsie Puckduck uh, from the Reserve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's people who do music and comedy there. So we get them down, and the whole premise is, is like a live TV show. We're about to start, and then these guys come in dressed like the Oka characters with the... You know the, the the kerchiefs over their face, right. and they say, "What is this?" And and you know they so we take over and uh, and and they we do a theme on whatever. So we were doing those, and then in the year two thousand, we were told the world was going to end. So we thought, "Well, what the heck? Let's do a show about that." So we did the uh, Y two K review, and it was a good success. So based on that, we thought, "Well, geez, this is kind of fun. Let's what? How can we build on that?" And so I was very involved in the association downtown Moncton at the time. And Ken Kelly, who he, he had in his head, he went to a fringe festival. And, mm-hmm. you know, these cities have these, you know, the Toronto Fringe and others. And I thought, well, we should do something in the wintertime because it's pretty. And I said, well, what about a comedy festival? And so we, anyway, the two of us got that going. And the first year, as I said, it was a real scramble to find people. But we always did that review as part of it. And then gradually we they started doing the Acadian Review La Revue Acadienne, yep. the French version. So it was always a bilingual festival, and um, and as it as it evolved, um, we realized that uh, you know there was a whole burgeoning stand-up scene, and it really evolved from a showcase of sketch mostly to stand-up to now. There's a little bit like the show I'm doing that I described, the Symphony Orchestra. So it's open to anything except, mm-hmm. as I say, the one thing we always wanted to do is make sure they're all Canadians, and I, you know, nothing to nothing against people from other countries. But we have broken that rule a couple times, and you know, we bring in these big shows at the casino to try to make some money. To, right. Yeah. Anyway, um, but it, you know, you mentioned that it's so funny because y- you have these poor comedians coming in, and you know, the, you know the lifestyle. Um, and so you, there's a hospitality suite that goes on till all, all hours. And on the last, at about midnight on Saturday, these poor people who've had to do their routine six times in two days, and they, like you say, you're driven across over to Riverview, which is a whole mm-hmm. you know town across the river from here, and and uh, and it, it, you know you're, they're just exhausted. Really, mm-hmm. they just look like people who've who've come out of the salt mines, which is rather interesting because I remember hearing years ago, and I'm sure it's true of stand-up that. An actor in a two-hour performance will expend far more energy than a construction worker who's done eight hours of work. Right. And I think it's all this fretting and right. standing and speaking. Pure torture. It yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, the the Pump House Brewery, which is a great venue for everything but, it seems, stand-up. Why, oh, why, <laughs> why are you guys so attached to that idea, uh, to that venue? It, I mean, they're a great, again, establishment. It's such a hard... It's a so room. True. I oh had to. I had, I had to fill in, and I'm like, I'm not a stand-up. I did that last year because what happens is, it's a place that has a pretty good room, but then a whole other room. If in only the it back. was that room, it was. It I would know. be great. I but know, it's this, the going around the corner stuff. And you'd think people and, are paying to go in, and uh, everybody that's there, including the people at the back, have paid to get there. But th- they're that's pay- the thing. You know, it's so weird. But it's such a popular venue in Moncton, and they get this like. They've been there from day one. They used to sponsor. And I used to say we call it the Pump House Comedy Festival because it's right. always packed. 
but you're right. It's um, man, it's a knife fight. You don't know the outcome. <laughs> you know, you might get a few nicks, but you just plow through. And, and then there was the other one, and we're not doing it this year at all. Moosers, where right, the, the people would stand, and you never had anybody in front of you. It was 360 they, degrees. They, yeah, there were there was either far to your right or far to your left. Yeah. Where do I turn? But right straight ahead of you was a is a solid wall. Yeah, yeah. And somehow that venue worked. Worked. Yeah. Great shows in there. No, it's not. The mo- most of them are not set up very well for it at all. I remember uh, back in the day, like eight years ago, when we started out, we started a Wednesday night at the Pump House with the help of uh, Robert Gallant. And man, <laughs> I can't believe it lasted as long as it did. It went for a few months. And I remember that. We were, we were basically just in a corner screaming our act to a room full of people that couldn't care. And because the open mic, the difference too of the festival was that it was free. So people would just go out. Yeah. And they're there. Yeah. No, that, that always works well there. Yeah. Yeah. And then we do a Saturday afternoon, always the winner of the contest gets to be on the same. Who are you with? Do you remember? Uh, Bowser and blue. Yeah. And that was actually when I did my set there, it was, it was during the day. It seemed it would have been the opposite. You wouldn't think it, it would be conducive to comedy. It was, great yeah. that time because yeah. everyone in the place maybe it wasn't as busy in the back so everyone in the place was listening but i've done a few nighttime shows there and during the fest where it's just packed and it's just for people listening who've never been to the pump house you walk in you'll see a comedian in the corner doing his act and about 30 people listening <laughs> but there's like 130 people in the place so there's like 100 people yeah. not listening and it's yeah, just like most of the time it's okay yeah um but we've had some fabulous. It's 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 feast or famine there. I guess right. it's always feast for the venue because it's always packed. So, packed. so it's to it's to when it works, it's brilliant. But right. when it doesn't, it's not. Whereas another venue, it's always okay. I mean, right, it's, it's right. never okay there. It's either brilliant or that's it's, right. And it and it seldom has much to do with the quality of the person who's up there. As as you know, like it's. We've had people, and you know, you talk to these comedians, and they bless them, you know, and they've just come from some weird arena in, you know, Riverview, like yeah. way out. Basically, it's in the wilds of Albert County, you know, because, mm-hmm. and they've just killed, they've destroyed, and then they come to this other place, and it's like there's a full house, yeah. and they do the same material, and they do it really well, and it just dies. Like, yeah. what is that? That's what's so great about this about this 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 weird thing that we you know the business of trying to and and I don't know it 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 it's not always about the person like the comedian mm-hmm. it's not always about the room there's this weird other element that it, I don't know is this chemistry in the room or what and and some people who you don't think their stuff is that good when you see them on stage here at the Capitol cuz we do the big gala on Thursday but then you go see them after and they're just on and it's because somebody in there has just fallen in love with them. Yeah. And everybody in the crowd rides with those four or five guys or women, whoever yeah. laughing at this guy. And we start laughing a little bit at the people laughing. Mm-hmm. And as you know, ultimately when you're up there and that's when it works really well, you don't have to be saying any words. That's right. You can be just making sounds. Yeah. And as long as the sounds have the right, you know, uh-huh, yeah. you know pause and <laughs> yeah, it's right. just, it's all about the timing. Yeah. It? Yeah. 
So and uh, cool. So anything big coming up for this year, the fifteenth year anniversary of the fest? Anything? Uh, well, we do have this partnership now with the Jespoirio, so mm. uh, we have some you know fairly big names. Uh, On we the have French to, side. yeah, uh, Peter McLeod, who uh, is a, you know uh, a big star in Montreal, and uh, but it just remains this balancing act of trying to develop people like yourself, who now mm-hmm. you know we're, we'll be thrilled to have you back in the future again. I know you, we had you back once since. Uh, but just to see that um, the people who are perhaps either living or from the area getting to share a spotlight with a Bowser and Blue, with a, uh, you know, Nikki Payne, who now lives near Moncton. Yeah, uh, yeah, so she got her own gig here at the Capitol. Uh, we'll have a packed house for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, to somebody like El- Elvira Kurt, who will host uh, our uh, gala, who's been through... Uh, that whole ordeal, I don't think she'll have any material on it, but we'd even get discussing about the year of the harassment here, 2014, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with Gian Gameshi. Um, so um, just that combination of, uh, of, um, of something old, something new, something local, some, and lots of brew, you know, there we That's go. That's right. Yeah. Cool. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, just uh, I want to congratulate you uh, on the success of your career. It's been... Uh, uh, the most satisfying thing, I think, uh, in being a uh, impresario, the you know I mentioned working in show business, I I, mm-hmm. I I often get more of a thrill to be the person who. Uh, and I, by the way, all my work with the Hubcap is as a volunteer. I, if, mm-hmm. if I if I make any money, it's from performing outside of that. But just to be part of that process and see, you know, hell, you you, you can speak into a can now and people will hear it all over. Um, That's right. You know, they may even pick us up in Memram Cook. We don't know. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. So I, you know, I want to, you know, congratulate you and others and just to see that, uh, thank you. the growth and, uh, you know, I wish you well in all your endeavors. Thank you, my friend. Marshall Button, you're a good man to ride the river with. Okay. Thank you, man. Yeah, we'll do it someday on the rest of Bush. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And there she is, folks, episode 28 in the books. That's right, the second and final installment of the East Coast Tapes. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening. Thanks to my guest, Marshall Button. Subscribe and rate the podcast. I appreciate it. Email me, pod at jdcomedyhour.com, Facebook slash jdcomedyhour, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, and at jdcomedyhour handle with the at symbol all right merry christmas i'll talk to you guys on boxing day watch your motherfucking head oh spike in the level see it's hard out of studio here let me let me let me try that again watch your head
second. Oh, yeah, there we there go. There we go. Check. Weird. Oh, it's a plug. It's a hmm. All right, so this is your volume here. So okay, feel free I'll to just, adjust that. Uh, yeah, take that down a bit. All right. Let's check your levels. Just say a little something. Hello, something. hello, hello. One, two, one, two. As I use my usual, I'm performing now, so I have to have more volume voice. <laughs> What's the uh, what's the um, the uh, what are you using to record this? Like what's GarageBand? Garage. That's what basically what comes with the. Yeah. It works yeah, well. Yeah, for then. I mean, for what I use it for. Yeah, I mean, it's great.